0: You're listening to black neon digital podcast episode 34 ivana Bartaletti on data discrimination the power structures behind ai and why we need to create socially conscious algorithms Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcast. I'm your host, Jodie Muter hamilton the founder of Black Neon Digital. And I believe the future of fashion is to honour craftsmanship whilst embracing innovation and to support each other to build businesses that have integrity. Ivana Bartoletti is a technical director at Deloitte. The co-founder of Women Leading in AI, an international lobby group of women advocating for responsible AI, and also the chair of the executive committee of the Fabian Society. Through her recently published book, An Artificial Revolution, Ivana brings to light the reality of the exponential advances being made in artificial intelligence. Her book makes us aware that we cannot be bystanders in an increasingly digitally driven world. Through this podcast, Ivana's expert insight shows us how society can be altered by data and how we must ensure that gender or racial bias is not built into algorithms by the people and businesses creating them. We also discuss how data and technology can be used to create a positive impact on the planet and society. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm very happy that we can do this because I've kind of been trying to pin you down and and record this for a little bit um, since we did a a panel together. Um, And actually, you know, what you talked about at that time, which was about, you know, uh, bias in AI just sort of blew my mind because it's something that you think about or you may have heard something, but you don't really know what it is. Um, And obviously, you've been working in this space for a long time. So can you just describe, um, you know, you've just recently launched a book, for example, but there's a whole lot of things that have to happen before you even get to that point. So where did your interest in, you know, technology and innovation and AI come from um, in, in the beginning?
1: well first of all thank you for having <laughs> me here today i'm really really delighted and yeah we've been trying to do this for a while so it's, it's incredible that you are now making this happen um, so my interest in technology well it started because i from, from because i'm a feminist actually so i it started with love and hate um because i think the relationship between technology and women has always been a very complicated one it's been complicated because we've we've seen technology as very much enabling for us as women um in terms of if you think about contraception if you think your science said so the innovation in technology has been very important for us um but at the same time i think there's always been a bit of a lie about it um so for example they think they say oh yeah technology is great for women for example because it you know it simplifies our life well not really because i personally find that i we have to be even more wanted women than before because now we have to multitask on a completely different new level because you can have a smart you know you can do everything from your mobile phone which is great but it is it seems as if you know our the, the, the work that we have to do is is it's the same if not more so it's it's like there are even less excuses to do things not they're not mm. perfect, you know. We've we, the expectations on us are yes, you know, the house has to be perfect, this has to be great, this has to be because now we've got technology that helps us, so it should be easier. But in reality, instead of being easier, the expectations have grown bigger. Mm. So like now we've got a washing
0: machine, for example. That was, you know, in the Victorian times or later, we got a washing machine so we could be freed up from using the um boards yeah, to do the washing. Yeah. But now we have to do more things. Exactly.
1: So it's like yeah. really strange. So I've been so the, the, the reason why I got into tech uh, from a sort of thinking space and, and it's because of this sort of strange relationship between women and technology. And and, and this happens also within the artificial intelligence space. And you know, if you think about it, you know, in, in AI, the coding side of things, um, in earlier on, it was all women to, all women doing it. And it's because it was very similar, considered as very secretarial, even very similar to knitting. And then, and that's why all women were doing it. And then once the commercials started to come out and they were all about Mm. men suited and booted, then everything changed. You know, once data became capital and so important, then, of course, even coding became a male-dominated industry. So this relationship between women and tech, is, in my view, is a very, very complicated one. In fact, even within this sort of women's movements, we've long debated it, um, the the relationship between women and technology, especially for the implication that that has on our body. And some women mm. see this liber- liberating, some people see uh, for example the technology on our bodies they see it as, as a sort of the the, the hand of, of of sort of the male hand you know coming onto our bodies and telling us and, and and wanted to to manipulate it so it's a really fascinating debate that's how I came into it and then I realized that yes bias is is um, obviously a very huge element to this but um, and of course when it comes to uh, bias in machines, so in algorithms mm. in machines, then the big risk is that we replicate and perpetuate all the stereotypes that we've got in society right now. But also, it's not just about the algorithm; it's not just about the data; it's not just about the way that the, the sort of you're constructing one particular tool. It's the its use and what you do with it? Um, so bias is not just inside the data it's not just but it's really around who is making the decisions around what technology is for and for women this is really really important so it's a really really fascinating area for me
0: what um kind of applications so if we think of things that could affect our daily life um what what things are AI that we don't really realise for people who don't necessarily know heaps about AI? What how does it affect us, and and where can we find AI in our
1: lives? Everywhere, and um, I mean it's hard to see a piece of software now that is that hasn't got some element of of AI. And AI is such a broad term, you know. So um, it's it's really, um, and this is a little bit of I think. Of a problem because a lot of people when they think AI they automatically think of terminator or they automatically think of the sci-fi film with sort of the machines that takes over the world the robot and kids will think about mm. wallies and you know, all that kind of stuff and, and and reality is that it's not really like that That the AI is present already in our phones in, in machine learning defines and, and, and uh, algorithms that have a major role in society right now i mean we live in a world where these machines these systems these algorithms they curate they edit they -hmm. decide what we're looking at um what we watch what we see what we don't see but also what we vote for Mm -hmm. and as we've seen recently so it's um it's a really complex situation. and they and, and and i think one of the the fears that I have is that if we consider and we continue to consider AI as something futuristic and robotics and, and human-like robots that then we are missing the point on what is actually happening right now. Hmm. And there's, hmm. you know, as you say, it's it's, it's just everywhere at the moment, is in our phones, is in in when we navigate the internet, um, it's in relation to whether we got access to a loan or not um the degree of human intervention varies, but increasingly more we are having algorithms replacing policy really. How can
0: you then not have any sort of bias data or AI? What's the solution to not creating these systems that are biased whether that's um you know towards female people or um racially or you know how do you ensure that there isn't a bias
1: yes it's a really interesting question because the bias is so the bias comes in at so many different stages of of this the the, the development and then deployment so the bias can come in because you input um bias data in Um, so what happens for example is that you would input um data that is naturally biased because it represents society as it is. I mean, there is no such thing as neutral data. Um, mm. Data is the product of, of history. If, and, and even deciding who ends up in a database and what doesn't end up in a database is, is an act of, of sort of of a decision selection yeah, selection, selection. and people call it you know the politics of data classification which is true you know you are elevating some and you're silencing others um so so but the, the, the data is in is biased in itself but then on top of that you have you can have the perfect sample um but you can still um you can still have bias within the system because the sample may not work well in a when deployed out there um because of the way that you aggregate the the data because of how you generalize um some the data may not be you know where they work as well as for the sample that you do but also because of the features and labels that you, you you choose you know you may end up ingesting bias in the systems even with that um And the other element is that you can have the perfect algorithm, so you can have all the algorithmic fixes in the world, but still you can deploy the system in a racially biased way, Mm -hmm. for example. I mean, think about um, um, one very prominent example, which is facial recognition. I mean, one of the key criticisms has been facial recognition is biased because it Mm -hmm. fails to recognise black women with terrible consequences on on their rights and, and civic rights and human rights. But the problem is, even if we had a perfect facial recognition system that recognises women, black women perfectly, would we still want it Because I am sure that even the use of it, the location, for example, where you end up Mm -hmm. deploying it, would be in some certain areas. Therefore, you may be having the perfect system that doesn't discriminate, and yet you may, its use and the decision of where to use it would Mm -hmm. um, lead to bias. So the solutions are I mean, all this is to say that there are two kinds of solutions. The first one is technological. So obviously, there are technological tools that allow you to reduce the bias or to understand uh, from a sort of technical standpoint, if one particular feature or one particular has made, has played a bigger role in defining the output of any particular decision. Um, so, you know, the, the, so there are technical ways of doing so. Um, but also the other side of is, is more policy related and it's really around, Um, The company saying, understanding the limitation of a technological fix and saying, I am going to make sure that before deployment, a testing stage, and when I'm creating the product, I am involving those who are going to be impacted the most by by this, and I'm going to test it on them and with them. So it's both level, I think, sort of technical and also policy wise.
0: I know. um, I, you know, we were talking before about um, places where AI or data is collected that you might not be happy with. So, without your consent, can you just talk about a bit about consent around data?
1: Yeah, I mean, consent around data is a rather difficult topic, in my view, because I don't know you, and and I mean, people sometimes say, "Well, how can you say that? You're sort of privacy." and data protection sort of fanatic but in, in reality um i do think that we are facing the failure of the consent model um i don't think it's reasonable in any way to place the expectation on a citizen and a digital citizen um and on the individual to having to go through the most grueling experience online, and read pages of of privacy notices, and and try to understand what is going to happen to my data, what is going to, um, it, it's just not right because we don't have the time, the capacity, um, in to do that, especially where, of the company, when a lot of these pages and privacy notices, they are, um sort of um, deceitful by design rather than privacy by design based because and the reason is this is happening is, it's not necessarily because of companies fault. I mean, because, because the model a lot of companies operating operating is the model of data extractivism, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then the companies do a lot of good work, I have to say to identify the right mitigation procedures, to enable people to be more empowered about their data. But it's not realistic. To place a lot of burden onto the consumer and for the reason that we navigate constantly we're constantly browsing and also because the line between online life and offline life is becoming increasingly blurred and you know the the idea that we can constantly look at the privacy notice and constantly clicking yes we are we we agree or not it's just not reasonable so we are in this crucial dilemma i think um which is okay if we are facing the sort of collapse of this sort of um constant model-based privacy what is next what's beyond it you know what, what what could we do and i do think that the key element here is is an element of, of trust and reliability of this system so is that is that a case that through um stronger law enforcement stronger auditability and and accountability of this this sort of um the website operating systems everything that we create a system where citizens can and, and the digital space can trust when they navigate and and they um and they sort of this instead of having privacy by default or this deception by default we have trust by default mm-hmm. it's a tricky one it's very difficult mm-hmm. um but i am i am just really worried that that this consent model is just not sustainable mm-hmm. and it's going to become even more difficult with artificial intelligence and automated systems. Because if you say to me, well, you know, uh, this decision has been made by a machine, but you can have it done by a human if you like, because this is your GDPR and data protection acts, right? Yes, fine. But what am I going to do with that piece of information? You know, Unless I'm a coder that can open up and read the code and say, can you please provide me with the code? And then most companies will say, no, thank you, because there's a commercial secrecy there. But even if they said yes, we'll give you a little bit of an understanding of the code, I may be able to understand it, maybe, because I'm I'm learning how to code with, with with a teenager. But the problem is, what about the average individual? And especially what are what about the most vulnerable ones? The mm. ones that we have exactly that we want to safeguard and protect. I mean, those are <laughs> are going to be the ones that are going to be even more failed by mm. the consent model and the sort of based on on consumer having a lot of responsibilities yeah. for what they do so it's a little bit of a tricky one i don't know what yeah It
0: creating a bigger divide in a oh, sense totally, in that, in that totally. way yeah the data literacy kind of side of it um and, i remember you said something you know people always talk about the value of data and yeah. i remember you said that data isn't um you know, data isn't gold, it's oil sort of thing, and that we have to kind of come away from dependency on the on the oil yeah. data. Um, can you, you know, you know, data is nowadays very valuable. So how do we kind of protect ourselves, not just in a, a kind of being taken our data, but can you feel in the future that we will hold our data and be able to sell it back and things like that if it, it's, you know, the new market research kind of way of doing things? Um what well, will
1: that happen, do you feel? Well, data is the, is I would say is it it's capital, it's not really oil. Mm. Um mm. oil is something that you use and then you dispose of once it's finished. You finish, you know, it doesn't but data can be reused and, and so it's not like a finished resource. Mm-hmm. Um so it's capital in the sense that it's got real bargaining power and um and we've seen this in, in a way that companies harvest data, um, and in the way that data sort of is mirroring some of the things that happen into capital more in general. So you, you have, for example, um, things like, for I call in a book, you know, a lot of people call Dalgo colonialism, you know, which is, by, you know, you go in and, and then sort of, in, in a country, which, which is financially poor, but data rich, and you can use that data to, to really train your model if you're a massive corporation so mm-hmm. it's it's really so so data is this sort of this new sort of capital that, that we're seeing the sort of geopolitical level as well but but the thing is in reality we should have the courage to understand that behind data is the real people and actually maybe data is a trait of people in itself you know that if i say if if i have a scan um on myself of of on my body that is not something that i can give away that is actually me because it's my body mm. you know even even something that i when i say like something on facebook that is not a piece of information which is outside of me this actually constitutes me and my personality because it's mm. it's it's me um so i think to me that is the main argument which goes completely against the idea of the monetization of data the idea that Data is something that you can sell or you can monetize on. I just think it just doesn't make any sense to me because data is us, awesome. and you wouldn't monetize yourself, mm. you know. I mean, you wouldn't. You can sell but, unless you're it, an influencer or something
0: that could yeah, build up the data to then sell back. I don't. Yeah, know. but you can't. But if, a if
1: kind of influencer, but you wouldn't sell. I mean, you would sell a car, but you wouldn't sell your arm. You know, it's, if mm. if it's you, it's part of you. Um, yeah, yeah. I just find it really conceptually very difficult. What I do like, though, as is is an idea, is to really think about what's happening now with this sort of COVID-19 situation, which is, I think, in this pandemic, I think we've all understood that there is a strong connection between us as individuals. So if you and I meet and spend 10 minutes together, and but I have covid and but we are not a distance so you don't know that i've covered i may pass it on to you so i think this sort of pandemic has demonstrated how interconnected and independent we all are but more than that it has demonstrated that there's something inherently valuable and public about our own personal data and i think we need to really harness that sense of the understanding because i don't really to be completely frank with you, I'm not particularly care for privacy in my own individual terms. I care for privacy as a collective value, which to me means data is an an incredible public asset, personal data, because it can improve research, it can make a society better. But in order to do so, it has to be safeguarded and protected. So I think the key thing is, how are we going to move away from the consent model identify rules that hold us together in terms of understanding how we share the data about ourselves. Maybe with new methodologies. So maybe Mm -hmm. instead of having relations between us and an organisation, maybe we could have and tons of organisations, individuals, maybe we can have bodies administering yeah. our data you know wouldn't be much better so i sign a contract mm. with a body and say this is what i want happening to my data this is what i give my consent to well get mm. on with it you know like I'm not a, a guardian a bit yeah something wasted. like that mm. um yeah it's um i just think you know that that there is something very valuable about personal information is a collective mm. asset and and mm. I want it to be treated properly and valuable in a valuable mm. way and with respect. and um, combining um sort of privacy with health, with security, we're not making it like an either or, which is so wrong. We can have both. Mm. Yeah, we've got the technology also to have it both. And and I think that is the challenge that we have in this mm. world, you know, in, from a privacy perspective. And I think privacy lawyers, privacy professionals, they need to Move a step forward um, in and embracing this new approach, and at the same mm-hmm. time, I think um, those who think about um, sort of futuristic approach to data, you know, as well, they need to step back a little bit because um, because we we have to to talk about these things in a way that can you know that everybody can understand, be and everybody, yeah, yeah. And be relatable to people.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. You're you've just released a book fairly recently. Can you talk about the the
1: drivers behind that and kind of the different themes within it? Yeah, I mean, that is really stems from my my sort of experience of data, all the things that we've been talking about. So a lot about my experience around data in in, but also um, also as a feminist, because to me the um, there are fundamental issues around technology and and gender and and gender um and there are fundamental issues around technology and the decisions around you know what we're going to do with this with, with with the tools that we're creating um and there's this sort of idea that Oh well, do you know what? We need to get more women in technology, more women doing tech, more women doing algorithms, coding. I mean, yes, fine. I mean, that's that's one part of the problem. The reality that we're not understanding is that I, I think is that we need more women at the top, politics, businesses, and everywhere to decide what we're mm-hmm. going to use technology for in the first place. Because, um, because the, to me, that is the major issue that we have at the moment. And we, we and 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 also, I mean, I do think that. I wrote this book because I'm actually very passionate about politics and politics for me is about is really around governing the uh, distribution of power. And, and at the moment in the digital space, we have a total asymmetry of power, total asymmetry. Yeah. But not just because a, a few companies hold a lot of data about us. It's not just that. It's the asymmetry of power due to the fact that we are creating complex machines that I call in the book, the bastard child to person of uh, psychoanalysis. You know, it's the idea that there's this sort of algorithms that are this sort of pointing pointed at us all the time when we navigate the, the internet and they can say so much about us. So these machines are powerful. I mean, we've seen it as emerged in the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal. These machines are powerful. So the asymmetries that these machines are very powerful. And yet we're still the same human beings that we were 3000 years ago with the same feelings, the same reactions and the same weaknesses. And then you've Mm -hmm. got the systems that are actually hacking into our weaknesses and use Mm -hmm. them to create value. And this asymmetry to me is, is, is really problematic and, and this is where sort of the political analysis that I make comes from, that I make comes from, comes from the idea that for me politics is about distribution of this power. Mm. And 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 I think we're we've reached a stage where this distribution is totally uneven. And this is where I want politics back in the driving seat. And say we have to make serious decisions about where we're going about all this before it's too late.
0: Yeah. How how do you think that um, we can we can kind of make the changes to make a better society? So, you said something around um, a, a better future in your book, like using data and, and technology for a better future. And obviously, your version of a better future it looks at this political landscape. Um, are there other parts that could be a better future or is it all
1: around politics and policy for you? I think we've got two pressing issues right now and they're not unrelated and they are the physical environment and the digital environment but they're not unrelated because this is where we live now we're living both and Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is that there is a strong link between those who completely deny climate change they're often the same ones that then um, use social media for um, sort of um, encouraging sort of divisions and so there's a strong link between the two mm-hmm. and and I think you know we we do have this priority right now and and um, it's the it's, it's the protection and safeguards of both environments Mm-hmm. Um, and I am hopeful that you know a younger generation like Ray Thunberg, who are you know somebody who has been so inspirational um, in really and is inspirational daily base, in the on a daily basis to say, look, you're getting it completely wrong here. Yeah, this is our future at stake, um, and I'm 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 confident that the younger generation can take ownership once they get into the more traditional sort of political landscape. Because I would like to see them. Heading into the more political, traditional political landscape, mm. which is the parliament, the um to take ownership of the debate around the digital space as well. But I just want to see them completely related because I can't imagine them being two separate worlds. You know, it's, it's, um there is so much pollution in the digital space as well, mm. and the two are unrelated because of disinformation, because of fake news, because of all the brainwashing that a lot of people get online it then has an impact on the way that we treat our physical world. So it's um, so to me, this is the core of, of what we're facing at the moment.
0: How as well, if you think about um, pollution through technology, so I, I know it's a different type of pollution, but um, technology is a really big driver of, you know, energy use it, it we have to use minerals and metals to make our phones that can be mined in places that are um you know perhaps women working in these mines with the metals how can we be aware of things like that and connect it to our daily lives in the same sense we are now about our clothes because uh, yeah yeah
1: but you yeah. make a really really good point I mean really, really good point its I just find it staggering that we spend time and I see a lot of people will maybe have no interest in traditional political sort of activism but they do and read the the province of products that they buy be clothes or food you know the, the labeling mm-hmm. of the food you know what you just go inside and they just say okay what is this made of you know that mm-hmm. and we don't do the same with uh, with technological artifacts do we I mean we don't do the same because because we, but do you know why I think because we don't know that if we were to trace how a um, a phone has been made, we would be shocked because we don't have that transparency around um, labor, the cost of labor, mm-hmm. which is behind the technological artifact. Um, there is one woman who expresses this. Beautifully, and there's Kate Crawford at the AI Now Institute, where she basically says, you know, I want transparency in algorithms and and automated decision. And transparency is not just how the algorithm works, is labor and data Mm. underpinning that. Where is the data coming from? And what is the labor that has gone Mm. beyond. And, and you know there's been used to create this particular thing and then this is how we can then empower individuals to say well actually I don't really want it and and you know we have seen um, we've seen this happening in 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 the food industry we've seen this happening in in ethical fashion and the, the, the thing is we're still not bringing this attitude mm-hmm. um, to the to the technological world and the reason is because at the, until now there hasn't been a real drive to do so but mm-hmm. it would be that's what we need to do and this is why for example we in the women leading AI which which I co-founded we are asking to apply the same principles of the labeling industry um, the same principles to, to to AI products so we want a label we want a quality mark we want a trust mark with something that says this is how this is where this mm-hmm. product is coming from this this is what it's made of.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you off air about what we're doing, but we're doing one for fashion. So a traffic light really? system. Yeah. So really? We could go into that. Yes. Um, yeah. So we definitely need to talk about that. But I was thinking there's a huge rise of now that we can't have fashion shows, for example, in real life. We we're turning to digital and digital creation Um And what started to happen is outsourcing again to create. And because people are not, um, they don't necessarily connect a physical making thing and a digital making thing, a theme that I've been starting to think a lot around is digital craftsmanship and kind of thinking of digital makers as artisans as well, and being able to ensure that they get paid fairly rather than it just being outsourced, you know, and being aware of who these makers actually are. Because if you create a three D digital product, it's a thing that someone spent time creating. Um, and to ensure that they get paid fairly, I think is really important as well as we move um, possibly less you know fashion shows and things so I don't know if there's any obviously in fashion there's different ways that you track things so certifications um, ethical trading initiatives and things are there a comparable in the tech world or not really in that same sense um
1: I don't think so but if, what is it I mean what an interesting topic um I wonder whether we could do something with the women leading yeah. now exploring this because it's <laughs> really be fascinating. Amazing, yeah. I hadn't thought it in this way. So what is happening at the moment in the digital world is a real understanding that there, there is a digital precariat out there and um and is it's there and is and and for example it's the Uber driver, is the um mm-hmm. it's all this sort of digital workforce that is coming on the back of, of automation. So this digital precariat is the sort of workers, is the, the people driving cars, the who and all this. And, the, and there's a massive challenge at the moment of whether they're mm. workers or not. So, but also they are workers whose life and, and working patterns and remuneration and career mm. is all decided by automation. Everything. Yeah. So, you know, you it's, it's it's algorithms deciding what delivery you're gonna do and and if you're going far or or, or, or. so it's really um, it's really um, a tricky one and, um, and but I think but I think um, at the same time I do wonder and this is where maybe it'd be interesting to work together and I do wonder whether there is some form of new activism mm-hmm. that can emerge. I mean, I'm really intrigued by the drivers at Uber who mm. together have decided to um, say strongly, saying we want transparency over the algorithms that have been decided, are used to mm. decide our promotions, yeah. the journeys that we make, and all these kind of things. And I do wonder whether within this sort of lack of of Complete dismantling of the traditional workforce and the structures of the traditional workforce. Mm. I do wonder where is the room for new forms of digital of activism, a new form mm. of, of unionization, maybe then less traditional form. Um, and that's a conversation that maybe it'd be nice mm. to to have, even in yeah. relation to the, sort of the fashion industry. Mm.
0: I think for women as well, particularly. You know, I don't know about you, but I've seen. Um, a lot more female Uber drivers, a lot more female um, Amazon delivery people um, recently because of COVID, because perhaps they're more vulnerable in losing their jobs because they're working part time because they're doing childcare and now, you know, have to go out and do find other jobs. So I think, yeah, I don't know how you feel about the, the pandemic disproportionately um, affecting women, but I kind
1: of feel that it's probably set us back quite a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, there's no doubt. And, and uh, it's an interesting one because I get people saying to me, oh, well, the fact that we have meetings on Skype and, and Zoom and the, the digital, so we haven't got the sort of the, the, the presence physically, that is quite good to women. And we've seen women taking more ownership of their space, the, the, the voice, you know. I makes me laugh it makes me laugh a bit because I'm like is that for real I mean is that true uh surely what it is true that that you know the the known sort of the meetings after work and the go to the pub you know the, the, that that are a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of women traditionally don't do for many different reasons mm-hmm. that you know that is changed in the, the way that we we have but at the same time I do think that women have been bearing up most of the the other responsibilities and if you look at women in in academia that's where the real shock comes from Mm. I mean the the number of publications and academic academic contributions has plummeted plummeted and Mm. and that is very disconcerting if you think about it but I think yes we are definitely going back and even this idea of working from home I mean I have to be honest I'm just like Yes, five. Yeah, it's fine. yeah how have you found that? I, it, it, it's <laughs> so I know good. your schedule is um like we
0: talked a while ago and you were like, Yeah,
1: I get up at quarter past yeah. five, half five.
0: Yeah, to get even done. Than that.
1: But but I'm lucky. Yeah. I am lucky because I you know, I've got a job that allows me to do that. But this working from home doesn't really take into account the diversity of women out there there are women for whom being at home is not mm. a safe place there are women who mm. are by themselves there are women that doesn't have don't have the the the, the, the right space to be in um and there are women for probably the majority of us to be honest where you know going to work is, 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 is time to get some time for themselves yeah, it's a bit you of space, know? Yeah. exactly yeah. so yeah so i think yes you're right we've gone back really yeah. 40 years <laughs>
0: yeah well we've got to push on through that then hopefully. yes exactly um okay
1: cool thank you is there
0: anything else you want
1: to talk about or no i'm just
0: inspired
1: by got, what you said about um the digital um, yeah. workforce and and you know this mm-hmm. sort of the outsourcing and and i think we need to work on that together
0: yeah i think that sounds good um lovely thank you thank you thanks to you I hope you enjoyed the show. Please take the time to subscribe and rate and review our show on iTunes. Until next time, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital and online at blackneondigital.com.